0: Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends about Jesus. Man, I hope you're good. Happy fall to you. Let's go. Today in this podcast, we're going to be talking about 129 to 131. And then I'm actually going to do a separate one to talk about 132 and plural marriage. So there'll be two for this week. All right. Not too long ago, my family took a trip to Las Vegas to escape the ever prevalent winter cold in Utah. Because when Kristen's warm, she's happy. When she's happy, I'm happy, right? So when we were down there, we went to this fun little container park that's surrounded by little shops. As we perused the shops, we came across a magic shop. And there, the, the shopkeeper demonstrated a magic coloring book to my youngest. First, he flipped through the pages and demonstrated that all the pages were blank. Then he had my youngest slap the book, and he flipped through the pages, this time showing black outlines of pictures. Then he had him tap the book again, and voila, colored pictures. Yeah, guess who bought a magic coloring book that day? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, I love magic. I I love the way it defies your expectations how it seems one way and then is actually another. There's something just wonderful about it. But we also need to be aware that this world lies in the domain of the father of lies, the author of deception. And we need to know that Satan will use the art of misdirection and deception to damn our progress. Elder Oaks says it this way, "...the devil is the father of lies, and he is ever anxious to frustrate the work of God... By his clever imitations. Persons may be receiving revelation or inspiration, but it is not from the source they suppose. End quote. So, this brings us to Doctrine and Covenants, section 129, which teaches us one methodology for discerning truth and actually grows out of Joseph's experience after receiving the Aaronic priesthood and keys of ministering of angels. Basically, it goes down like this. From what we can tell, not too long after John the Baptist confers the priesthood of Aaron upon Joseph and Oliver with the keys of the ministering of the angels, the devil appears on the banks of the Susquehanna in the form of an angel of light. But the voice of Michael was heard by Joseph detecting the devil. Doctrine and Covenants 12820. And in this experience, Michael teaches Joseph certain keys by which, the Joseph, uh, by which the devil could be detected when he transforms into an angel of light. So, back to 129. You know the one about shaking hands with angels and demons? Has this ever struck you as a random section? You're like, okay, the next time I see an angel, I'll be sure to shake his hand. Well, Joseph is outlining the discernment uh, uh, methodologies that he learned from Michael here. Professor Alonzo Gaskill that teaches religion up at BYU breaks it down like this. He says, when a messenger comes, meaning Joseph assumes that angels are at times uh, sent from the presence of God with communications from him to us. And and if we think it's just a little strange that angels would come, I don't know, maybe we are the ones that need to adjust his thinking because he's like, man, this could happen. It should happen with you. Anyways, Joseph goes on and says, offer him your hand. Uh, Alonzo Gaskell commenting on this says, The prophet Joseph, uh, in any such encounter, the temple-initiated saints, should offer a token as a key or a sign of the angel's divine commission. If it's the devil, um, Satan trying to deceive us, um, then uh, he will draw away from uh, the disciples. The devil will either offer you his hand or he will shirk back, but he will not stand still. He is obligated by some divine law to act in such a way that you will be able to clearly detect him and see through his efforts at deception. In in any circumstance where Satan attempts to convey the tokens or keys offered patrons in the Holy Temple, Doctrine and Covenants 129.8 promises that he will be bound and prevented from conveying that which he knows. Even though his spirit body is unquestionably made of refined matter that can be felt. We see evidence of this later on when Wilford is on, uh, Woodruff is on a mission. He says... Uh, On October 18th, 1840, after he's received these keys from Joseph, he says, I fell asleep, slept until midnight, and awoke, and I meditated on the things of God until three o'clock in the morning. And while forming a determination to warn the people in London by the assistance and inspiration of God to overcome the power of darkness, a person appeared to me whom I consider was the prince of darkness. He made war upon me and attempted to take my life. As he was about to overcome me, I prayed to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ for help and then had power over him and he left me, though I was much wounded. Afterwards, three persons dressed in white came to me and prayed with me and I was healed immediately of all my wounds and delivered of all my troubles. Wounds, troubles, All of that. One more experience. Wilford Woodruff in London. He says, Brother Kimball, George A. Smith and myself had an experience in London where we were stopping. It seems that there were legions of spirits there. They saw our destruction. And on one occasion after Brother Kimball had left, these powers of darkness fell upon us to destroy our lives. Both Brother Smith and myself would have been killed apparently had not three messengers came into the room filled with light. They were dressed in temple clothing. They laid their hands upon our heads and we were delivered. The power was broken as far as we were concerned. So this revelation is not a declaration that Satan cannot do physical harm here. You obviously can. But it is a declaration that when the temple initiated, used certain signs, words, that the false spirits and personages may be detected from true. And that these signs are to be had in holy temples. Uh, Gasco goes on to say, apparently we can draw but one conclusion from the historical record, namely that in Joseph's eyes, one of the purposes for which the endowed are given these keys is in to enable them to have power of discerning spirits. In other words, that which is learned in the Lord's house will enable those in possession of this knowledge not to be deceived by the father of lies. Uh, the, the crux of the message is that the, the assurance that even though Satan may appear, deceive, and accost the children of God on earth, when those endowed in the Lord's house have uh, power over him, there have limits been placed on the devil and his angels by divine decree. The fallen third of the hosts of heaven have been forbidden to shake hands with the temple-going saints. They are bound by law. They have been strictly prohibited from utilizing that which is taught in the holy temple in order to gain trust of mortals on earth. This is the primary message of Doctrine and Covenants 129.8. End quote there from Alonzo Gaskill. And so this idea of teaching these signs is something that Joseph does. So Joseph gains these signs or keys Um, while he's on the Susquehanna River shortly after receiving the priesthood. And then you see he teaches them to Wilford Woodruff before he goes on his mission. And then in 1840, uh, we have a record of him teaching these same signs or keys to uh, William Clayton, his trusted um, clerk and secretary. And then uh, in April 1842, he actually teaches some of these signs and keys to the Relief Society. Uh, It's a Sunday meeting uh, in the grove. He says, quote, this is Joseph. The keys are certain signs and words by which false spirits and parsonages may be detected from true, which cannot be revealed to the elders till the temple is completed. There are signs in heaven, earth, and hell. The elders must know them all to be endowed with power to finish their work and prevent imposition. The devil knows many signs, but does not know the signs of the Son of Man or Jesus, no one can truly say he knows god until he has handled something and this can only be done in the holiest of holies end quote so he teaches the relief society this in april and may 1st the quote i just read to you he teaches the the general congregation in the grove and then after he talks about this he begins to initiate some individuals into this endowment ceremony and teach them more about these signs and tokens that will allow them to discern true messengers from false messengers. Basically what happens a few days uh, after this in May, Joseph grabs some uh, select church leaders and they go to a temporary temple that he has created on the second story floor of his Nauvoo store. Um, Talking about this, Heber C. Kimball writes to Parley P. Pratt, and he says, We have received some precious things through the prophet on the priesthood, which would cause your soul to rejoice. I cannot give them to you on paper, for they are not to be written. So you must come and get them for yourself. When he actually comes in and receives these teachings, the journal entry um, for Um, Joseph teaching Parley P. Pratt when he's back from his mission becomes 129. Anyways, um, so May 4th, they're in the store, um, and Joseph takes them through this endowment ceremony. The fact that they're in the store, Joseph just says, hey, the rich can only get them in the temple. The poor may get them on the mountaintop as Moses did. So on the wall, they see painted murals reminding them of the garden setting, the Garden of Eden being crucial here. You're going to see that symbolism in the tabernacle, uh, where the presence of God is, is the idea. So they have some small trees and plants, again, setting that garden setting. They've hung up a rug like a curtain or a veil. And for the rest of the afternoon, Joseph introduces them to ordinances. Part of these ordinances they have been exposed to before in the Kirtland endowment involving washing and anointing and things like that. The men are also given a sacred undergarment that covers their body and reminds them of their covenants. And then he draws on the scriptural account of the creation in the Garden of Eden to guide the men in a step-by-step process through the plan of salvation. Now, uh, the book of Abraham is heavy on his mind right here. And other pedagogy um, features he's been exposed to. He's got a rich mind to develop these like Um, the Masons and others, he's able to draw from all these sources, his translation of Abraham, his participation in Masonic rituals, the teachings God's given him, all to bring about this good way to teach these people and imprint on their mind the seriousness of this. So as he takes them step by step through the plan of salvation, um, giving them covenants that would enable them to return to God's presence, they make covenants to live righteous, chaste lives and to dedicate themselves to serving the Lord. When the ceremony is done, Joseph tells Brigham this. He says, quote, This is not arranged right, but we have done the best we could under the circumstances in which we were placed. And I wish you to take the matter in hand and organize and systematize these ceremonies. This is one thing I love about the gospel of Jesus Christ, because God gives us a lot of trust, but He's also okay with growth and development, future revelations line upon line. And we should be okay with it. The fact that rituals or ceremonies change over time doesn't change the endowment. There's a difference between how the the presentation of the endowment and the endowment, which is the covenants and power which bring us into the presence of God. About five months after he introduces these individuals into the endowment, he administers the ordinance to Emma in the Nauvoo mansion. Soon thereafter, Emma washes and anoints other women It's the first time a woman had officiated in the temple ordinance using the priesthood power of God to endow these women with power. Soon other women performed the ordinance under Emma's supervision. And basically, um, by the time uh, Joseph dies, he's endowed a little more than uh, 90 people here. And they're, they're called the quorum of the anointed or the holy order. And they meet together often and Joseph teaches them. In talking about the endowment, Brigham Young says, let me give you a definition in brief. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life to enable you to walk back to the presence of the father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels. So like I I whispered before, Heber told Parley about these rituals. When Parley comes back, Um, he is able to receive these teachings and that entry, like I said, becomes what we see in Doctrine and Covenants 129. Alonzo Gaskell again on 129. There appears to be no question but that the keys delivered in section 129 were given to Heber, Parley, and others as part of the temple endowment. Joseph's public remarks on the section indicate that he connected the substance of 129 with the other uh, ordinances of the temple and believed that the information in this revelation held increased significance for those who had been endowed. Now that's one part, but I also think there's some broader takeaways here. We're talking about avoiding deception. This is one pattern or manner which we can avoid deception, where we can discern truth from error. But the president of the church, President Nelson, Has said this. He says, We live in a world that is complex and increasingly contentious. The constant availability of social media and the 24 hour news cycle bombard us with relentless messages. If we are to have any hope of sifting through the myriad of voices and the philosophies of men that attack truth, we must learn to receive revelation. Pray in the name of Jesus Christ about your concerns, your fears, your weaknesses. Yes, the very longings of your heart. And then listen. Write the thoughts that come to your mind. Record your feelings and follow through with the actions you're prompted to take. As you repeat this process day after day, month after month, year after year, you will grow into the principle of revelation. Does God really want to speak to you? Yes! I urge you to stretch beyond your current spiritual ability to receive personal revelation. For the Lord has promised that if thou shalt seek, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation, knowledge upon knowledge, that thou mayest know the mysteries and the peaceable things which bringeth joy, which bringeth life eternal. Nothing opens the heavens quite like the combination of increased purity, exact obedience, earnest seeking, daily feasting on the words of Christ in the Book of Mormon, and regular time committed to temple and family history work, end quote. Here's what I'm saying. I submit to you that the endowment ritual is designed to tie you closer to Jesus Christ. And the closer you are to the light of the world, the more clearly you will be able to see you will be able to overcome deception. If you're not shaking hands on the regular with angels and demons, I want you to think how have you developed your capacity to discern true messages and messengers from false messages and messengers. And I also want you to consider why is this an absolutely crucial skill for you to develop today? It's kind of like when I was walking through the grocery store and I saw a guy from my ward with another woman and I was like, oh crap, that's bad. Then I remembered he had an identical twin who was actually married to that woman. (laughs) See, the more time you spend with Jesus in the temple endowment, in scriptures, in obedience, all of that, the more time you spend with Jesus, the easier it will be for you to discern truth from error. Just like the fact that I'd spent time with a guy in my ward and I could tell some subtle differences between him and his twin. What we are saying is that God wants to help you understand the difference between truth and error. Satan's going to try and deceive you. Have no doubts about that. But God is there and he will help you to discern. Sound good? All right, let's go on to part two of today's lesson. To, today's lesson, the con, uh, the second part of today's lesson, uh, takes place on April 2nd, 1843. William Clayton, Joseph's personal secretary, and Apostle Orson Hyde and Joseph Smith travel on this date to visit a group of saints who live in Ramus, Illinois. In the morning, Orson Hyde speaks, and he says, talking about the second coming, because there's a crazy dude pred- predicting the end of the world around now, and so they're talking about the second coming, he says, when Jesus shall appear, we shall be like him. He will appear on a white horse as a warrior, and maybe we shall have some of the same spirit. Our God is a warrior. It is our privilege to have the Father and the Son dwelling in our hearts, End quote. Joseph says later, quote, We dined with my sister Sophrania after the meeting, when I told Elder Hyde that I was going to offer some correction to his sermon this morning. He replied, They shall be thankfully received. How crazy would that be, right? Like you give a talk and then the prophet is like, "Ah, can I tell you where you got it wrong? And you're like, yes, please. It's from this lunchtime uh, conversation that we get Doctrine and Covenants section 130 verses 1 through 3. Here Joseph teaches, when the Savior shall appear, we shall see him as he is. We shall see that he is a man like ourselves. And that same sociality which exists among us here will exist among us there only it will be coupled with eternal joy which glory we do not now enjoy he says uh quoting third john fourteen twenty three, the appearing of the father and the son in that verse is a personal appearance and the idea that the father and the son dwell in a man's heart is an old sectarian notion and it is false so after lunch Uh, Joseph says at the close of the afternoon meeting, we expected to start for Carthage to have another meeting. But the bad weather, basically Midwest thunderstorm, prevented us. So I called another meeting for, uh, for the evening. And it's in that meeting in the evening while Joseph is teaching that we get Doctrine and Covenants section 130 verse 18 through 23. Where, among other things, Joseph teaches the Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's the sun also but the holy ghost has not a, uh, a body of flesh and bones but is a personage of spirit were it not so the holy ghost could not dwell in us dude i know that that sounds so routine to you but the implications of this are tremendous the implications about the nature of god and our eternal destiny is just absolutely huge here About a year later, Joseph expounds on this idea of God having a body. While he's teaching uh, at the funeral of a guy named King Follett, which is just a boss name, by the way, Joseph expounds on this idea of God having a body. He says, God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. Okay, time out. That's huge. He is making the bold proclamation that God was once a... Uh, a frail person like us living on an earth. He says, It is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. Here he is talking about the fact that God was once like we are. To know that he was once a man like us, yea, that God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth. And then he fills out, he fleshes out the implications here. He says, If that is the fact for God, Quote, you have got to learn to be gods yourselves, to be kings and priests of God, the same as all gods have done before, by going from a small degree to another, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you're able to sit in glory. Dang. Also, around the same time, Joseph begins teaching a companion doctrine. Um, When Zina Huntington's mother passes away from malaria, she comes to Joseph, saddened by the loss and in grief, and she says, will I know my mother as my mother when I get to the other side? Instantly, Joseph replies, certainly you will. More than that, you will meet and become acquainted with your eternal mother, the wife of your father in heaven. I have a mother in heaven? You assuredly have. How could a father claim his title unless there was also a mother to share that parenthood? End quote. This is huge. God has a body, right? We have a mother in heaven who has a body. George Q. Cannon says it this way. God is a married being, has a wife. We are the offspring of him and his wife. This is huge because this is... What we know about divinity, there is no such thing as a single god or goddess. It happens in this cooperative relationship between heavenly father and heavenly mother and they create this new form or this new being together. It's absolutely profound on everything we believe doctrinally about the family, about our nature, and about what we are going to become. Spencer W. Kimball says it this way. He says, God made woman in the image of his wife partner. You women are daughters of God. You are precious. You are made in the image of heavenly mother. The family proclamation says it this way. All human beings, male and female, are created in the image of God. Each is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. End quote. So when we put together all these amazing things, we got some pretty profound doctrine here. Number one, Heavenly Father was once a man like us and dwelt on an earth. Number two, Heavenly Mother was once a woman like us who dwelt on an earth. They obeyed the laws of salvation and exaltation, including celestial marriage, and they represent our potential. They represent what we can become. And they have given us a plan to achieve that potential and an instruction manual, a recipe, if you will, a practice regime. Uh, Stop talking about this like it's a test, man. This is practice and God is giving us a chance to practice being divine, a heavenly mother, a heavenly father here. That's why Joseph says, if men do not comprehend the character of God, they do not comprehend themselves. Now, these doctrines bring us naturally to the next doctrine of celestial marriage. That's going to be taught in section 131. The context of this is May 16th, 1843. Joseph again is in Ramus, Illinois, this time visiting a friend named Benjamin Johnson. Benjamin Johnson talks about it this way. He says, in the evening, Joseph called me and my wife to come and sit down. And he said, he wished to marry us according to the law of the Lord. I thought it a joke. And said, I should not marry my wife again unless she courted me. Okay, time out. Number one, that is a clever, witty line. And number two, it tells you a little bit about Joseph, how he's jovial and kind of joking. So when he says, I want to marry you, Benjamin Johnson's like, dude, this time my wife better be bringing me the flowers and picking up the tab for the day like I courted her all the last time. But Joseph, we'll go back to this. Joseph, quote, chided me for my levity. He told me he was in earnest And so it proved, for we stood up and we were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So, immediately after this exchange, Joseph taught the following doctrine. William Clayton, Joseph's secretary, is sitting there, so he records it. Here's what it says. In the celestial glory, there are three heavens or degrees. Now, time out real quick. I know you heard a lot of things on this. Most uh, Joseph Smith scholars, Stephen Harper and others, will argue that he's talking about the three heavens, meaning celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. Usually, we interpret this as three parts of the, the celestial kingdom. Um, most guys working on the Joseph Smith papers are saying that that's an out-of-context interpretation. I don't care either way what you want to believe. I, I don't know if we know concretely enough, but he's basically saying here, just to be clear, it, to go to the celestial kingdom, right? Verse two, in order to obtain the highest, the celestial kingdom, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. If he does not, he cannot obtain it. He may enter into the other, but that is the end of his kingdom. He cannot have an increase. Again, this has to do with what we, we know about what it means to become a divine being right here. Um, the nature of heavenly mother and heavenly father here. In commenting about this, Elder Bednar says this, Two compelling doctrinal reasons help us understand why eternal marriage is essential to the father's plan. Reason number one, The natures of male and female spirits complete and perfect each other, and therefore men and women are intended to progress together towards exaltation. By divine design, men and women are intended to progress together towards perfection and a fullness of glory. Because of their distinctive temperaments and capacities, males and females each bring to a marriage relationship unique perspectives and experiences. The man and the woman contribute differently but equally to a oneness and a unity that can be achieved in no other way. The man completes and perfects the woman, and the woman completes and perfects the man, as they learn from and mutually strengthen and bless each other. Reason number two. By divine design, both a man and a woman are needed to bring children into mortality and provide the best setting for rearing and nurturing children. End quote. So, He's saying, and Joseph is teaching and what we understand about God, that marriage is important. But what about those who don't get married, who don't find a companion in this life or haven't yet? Well, there's some really important teachings that we need to understand on this. First, from the truth of the faith, he says, some members of the church remain single through no fault of their own, even though they want to marry. If you find yourself in this situation, be assured that all things will work together for the good of them that love God. As you remain worthy, you will someday, in this life or the next, be given all the blessings of an eternal family relationship. This is so big, right? Whatever your situation or your loved one's situation is, if they are not in a position that they are able to get married, if they remain worthy and true to God, they put God before anything else, he promises that all the blessings he has in store will be theirs. This life is difficult sometimes. It is challenging. But, and this is a, a significant challenge for many. But know that as we put God first before all other things, he will have our backs. Elder Oak says it this way, Through the merciful plan of our Father in heaven, persons who desire to do what is right, but through no fault of their own, are unable to have an eternal marriage and mortal life, will have the opportunity to qualify for an eternal life in the period following mortality, if they keep the commandments of God and are true to their baptismal and other covenants. Elder Uchtdorf says, In the meantime, do not wait for someone else to make your life complete. Stop second-guessing yourself and wondering if you're defective. Instead, seek to reach your potential as a child of God. Seek learning. Become engaged in a meaningful career. Seek fulfillment in service to others. Use your time and your talents and your resources to improve yourself and bless those around you. All of this is part of your preparation for having a family. Immerse yourself in your ward and your branch. Seek to magnify your calling, no matter what they may be. Be faithful. And things will work out for you. That is his eternal promise to all who honor and love him. It's going to take faith to walk into the darkness here a little bit. It's going to be hard. But you can trust in his promises. You can trust in God. You know him. Trust in him. What about those whose spouses die before they get sealed? Well, in late May 1843, Joseph and Emma are sealed for eternity. Then Joseph invites Brigham and his wife and Willard and his wife and Hiram and his wife Mary Fielding to also be sealed. But as they're talking, Hiram is worried about his complicated family situation since his wife had died six years earlier, his first wife, Jerusha, and he had since married Mary Fielding. When asking Joseph what he can do, Joseph says, you can have Jerusha sealed to you upon the same principle as you can be baptized for the dead. What can I do for Mary Fielding, Hiram asks. You can also make a covenant with Mary Fielding for eternity. When he talks to Mary Fielding, Mary agrees to serve as Jerusha's proxy in the sealing. And she says, I will be sealed to you, Hiram, for eternity myself. I love you and I don't want to be separated from you. In other words, there is an idea that you can be made right and God will help you. This sort of idea of an eternal everlasting covenant is fleshed out in Doctrine and Covenants 132. God says, I'm going to reveal unto you a new and everlasting covenant. And if you abide not that covenant, then you are damned for no one can reject this covenant and be permitted to enter into my glory. For all who will have a blessing at my hand shall abide the law which is appointed for that blessing and the conditions thereof as were instituted from before the foundation of the world. And as pertaining to the new and everlasting covenant, uh, it was instituted for the fullness of my glory, and he that receiveth the fullness thereof must and shall abide the law, or he shall be damned, saith the Lord God. Basically, God is saying, Hey, I'm laying out the principle or pattern by which you can progress. And he, when he uses the word damn, he's using it just like you would dam a river. He's saying, There's only so far you can get without this union. And now again, for those who don't have this opportunity, God's going to provide it. You just do what you can do, right? But he's saying this is absolutely crucial to your your progress. Why will we be stopped without that help? Uh, Basically, God says in verse 13, everything that is in the world, sorry for my loud fan that was made officially in 1920 and I have no control over it. It will stop soon. Anyway, sorry, back here. And everything that is in the world, whether it is ordained of men By thrones, principalities, powers, or things of name, whatsoever they may be that are not by me or by my word, saith the Lord, shall be thrown down. That's a lot quieter. And shall not remain after men are dead, neither in nor after the resurrection, saith the Lord God. For whatsoever things remain are by me, and whatsoever things are not by me shall be shaken and destroyed. Okay, this is a crucial point here. Basically, God is saying there is not only physical entropy in this world, but there is also, it seems to be just entropy in general. That um, And what we mean by entropy is that things tend to fall apart. Um, whatever they are, they tend to decay to chaos, whatever. It's just the state of being is the state of essence that things tend towards decay. And God's saying, hey, you can make whatever proclamation you want. It can be done by a king. It can be done by somebody popular or powerful. But it does not matter. They cannot stop entropy. They themselves will die. Only I have power over entropy. If you are in me, then you will remain. If you are not in me, then there is no promise or power. My friend has a sweet object lesson with this. Now, it's kind of a gross object lesson, but he basically, he's got four different jars of peaches and uh, he has broken the seal on three of them and they are in various states of decay. One he's had for like a decade. The whole jar of peaches is about the size of a 50 cent piece at the bottom, it's this hard gray piece of crust. Others are in various stages of sploosh and and decay right here. What what it shows so clearly is that the sealed one is still preserved. And the ones that are unsealed are in various states of entropy and decay. And so God's saying that your progress is going to be stopped if you don't follow his methodology because. Only he can interpose in death and in decay, and that goes for relationships too, and preserve them. And, but he is not going to force preservation. He honors agency. So unless you choose to use your agency to connect with him in the way he has asked you to connect with him, then there is no preservation and power. Because he says, behold, my house is a house of order and not a house of confusion. So God's saying, if God does not impose on nature, the natural conclusion is entropy and decay. If he chooses to interpose and create order, he, sorry, he chooses to interpose and create order by delegating priesthood keys by which we can administer his life-giving power and choose to use our agency to access his life-giving power. So he really lays it out here in verse 7. He says, Verily I say unto you that the conditions of this law are these, all covenants, contracts, bonds, obligations, oaths, vows, performances, connections, associations, or expectations that are not made, And entered into and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise of him who is anointed. So, it doesn't matter the contract. If it is not made by somebody who is appointed, who holds the keys of God, the life-giving, entropy-fighting keys of God, if it's not made by him, both as well for time and eternity, and that too most holy, By revelation and commandment through the medium of mine anointed, whom I have appointed on the earth to hold this power, and I have appointed unto my servant Joseph to hold this power in the last day. And there is never but one on the earth at a time, President Nelson right now, on whom this power and keys of the priesthood are conferred. Okay, so you get that. He's like, if you don't make a covenant by my anointed servant who holds the keys to do this, and those keys again can be delegated to sealers throughout the earth. They are of no efficacy, no virtue, no force in, a, af, in and after the resurrection for the dead. For all contracts that are not made unto this end have an end when men are dead. Basically, God is just describing the reality of the universe. He's saying, listen, entropy is real. Satan is real. Death is real. You see it all around you. You can either choose to do it in the way I've prescribed and I will interpose my grace and I will help you. Or you can try it and do your own idolatry, worship your own power, do it your own way. But fact, it will fall short. It will be insufficient and it will end. Just to clarify, he then gives three marriage scenarios in this section. And note, All of these are referring to church members. We know very well that those who do not have an opportunity to use their agency and accept Jesus Christ will get an opportunity to use their agency and accept Jesus Christ in the spirit world. The first scenario is this. A man and a woman, a member of the church, fall in love, keep the law of chastity, and are happily married by a local government leader. They are not sealed in the temple. Their marriage ceremony includes the words to let you apart, And a few years later, the husband is killed in a car accident. Now, I'm embellishing the, the example that God actually uses in 132, but it's the same scenario. He says, the result is they are not together. Um, another scenario here is that they get married in the temple, but they do not live in a way that the Holy Spirit of promise binds their marriage together. Result, they're not together. So it's got to be in the right place by the right person, and you've got to live in a, the right way in order for that to work. If you do so, here is the promise. And it's huge. Uh, it's, it, I don't know any other way to say it. It's just amazing. Verily I say unto you, if a man marry a wife by my word... Which is my law, and by the new and everlasting covenant. And it is sealed unto them by the Holy Spirit of promise, by the way they live. By him who is anointed unto whom I have appointed this power and the keys of this priesthood. And it shall be said unto them. This is the promise, and it's crazy. Ye shall come forth in the first resurrection. And if it be after the first resurrection, in the next, next resurrection. And shall inherit thrones, kingdoms, principalities, and powers, dominions, all heights and depths. Then shall it be written in the Lamb's book of life that he shall commit no murder, whereby to shed innocent blood. And if you abide in my covenant and commit no murder, whereby to shed innocent blood, it shall be done unto them in all things whatsoever my servant had put upon him in time and through all eternity and shall be in full force when they are out of the world and they shall pass by the angels and the gods which are set there to their exaltation and glory in all things as has been sealed upon their heads which glory shall be a fullness and a continuation of seeds forever and ever. Then shall they be gods because they have no end. Therefore, they shall be from everlasting to everlasting because they continue and they shall be above all because all things are subject unto them. Then shall they be gods because they have all power and the angels are subject unto them. This is amazing. God is basically saying, listen, unless you become a son of perdition, I can work with you. My grace is sufficient. If you make these covenants and you keep trying, I am going to work with you and you are going to be transformed. It is the most hopeful promise I know of. It is the most glorious idea in the world. It is, it is amazing. I, I cannot tell you how much I love God and I'm thankful to Jesus and his mercy for making this possible. President Nelson says it this way. He says, the earth was created, and the church was restored so that families could be formed, sealed, and exalted eternally. A temple marriage is not only between husband and wife. It embraces a partnership with God. When a family is sealed in the temple, that family may become as eternal as the kingdom of God itself. He says, Marriage brings greater possibilities for happiness than does any other human relationship. It is the foundry for social order, the fountain for virtue, and the foundation for eternal exaltation. Have faith in God's plan for you. Trust in good things to come. Trust in him. Please believe in him and his plan. Even if you don't see it right now, trust him. Elder Eyring teaches powerfully on this topic. He says, I am grateful. He's speaking um, in the Vatican at this moment. He says, I am grateful to be invited to be a witness at this colloquium. I am especially grateful for the opportunity to give evidence that a man and a woman united in marriage have a transcendent power to create happiness for themselves, their family, and for the people around them. I am an eyewitness of the power of the union of a man and a woman in marriage to produce happiness for each other and for their family. The evidence I offer is personal, yet I trust my recital may trigger in your memories that what you have seen, that you would point to a general truth beyond the experience of one couple and one family. The evidence I I offer begins when I was a single man living alone without a family near me. I thought I was happy and content. I was a doctoral student at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. My research work was going well. I was serving others through my church and found time to play tennis often. An assignment in my church took me to a morning meeting in a grove of trees in New Hampshire. As the meeting ended, I saw in the crowd a young woman. I had never seen her before. But the feeling came over me that she was the best person I'd ever seen. That evening, she walked into our church meeting in Cambridge. Another thought came into my mind with great power. If I could only be with her, I could become every good thing I ever wanted to be. I said to the man sitting next to me, do you see that girl? I would give anything to marry her. We were married a year after I first saw her. The wedding ceremony was in the temple of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The words spoken in the ceremony included a promise that we might be husband and wife in this life and for eternity. I have become a better person as I have loved and lived with her. We have been complimentary beyond anything I could have imagined. Our differences combined as if they were designed to create a better whole. Rather than dividing us, our differences bound us together. Above all, our unique abilities allowed us to become partners with God in creating human life. Spouses and family members can lift each other and ascend together if they care more about the interest of the other than their own interests. Those are things people must do for us to have a renaissance of happy marriages and productive families. We can and must stand up and defend the institution of marriage between a man and a woman. As we join together in this work, I promise progress toward that happy result. End quote. I invite you to trust God to come to know him, his nature, and who he is, and work within the laboratory he has given you to become divine. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.